Okay. Genesis chapter 25 today. Beginning chapter 25. Last week we finished that uh, story about uh, Rebecca and uh, Isaac and the marriage of Rebecca and Isaac. It's really neat. Really neat story. I really enjoyed that. I always do enjoy that. <coughs> but uh, let's take uh, let's take a few moments before we go on into the passage we're going to look at today and just review what we talked about last week. But let me mention this: that today we are we are ending our study of Abraham. We finally reached the end of of that uh, Taladot, the Taladot of Terah. Uh, the generations of Terah, and which was, of course, primarily about uh, Abraham, and we're finishing that today uh, with uh, the end of Abraham's life. So, uh, in addition to things you recall from last week, do you have? Uh, is there some particular part of the story of Abraham that we have covered over the last? 37 or 38 lessons or so that we've been in the life of Abraham that sticks out to you and that is particularly meaningful to you. So, it's kind of an open open forum here for a few minutes. Uh, what do you remember from last week and, and what do you remember from our study of Abraham? Talking about with sharing the gospel and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful picture. Isn't it? yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful picture. Yeah. 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 It's pretty neat, isn't it? Yeah. I like that. But, Abraham's example that's in all the mistakes. <laughs> so uh, that is comforting and encouraging. I think on the other side of that, you know, Abraham followed God. He didn't choose the idol way, yet he never had a place of his own. So worldly wise, he can say, Look, I'm doing what you want me to do. You know? And so sometimes we might expect more than what we really want. Yeah. 
And we're going to talk about that tonight, today too. That comes up again today as we talk about the end of his life. So, what else? Even though he was in the midst of idol worshippers, they had respect for him and his integrity. Yeah. And realized that he was blessed by his God. Yeah, isn't that something? Yeah, yeah, that is. That, that living in the world like he did, they still respected him because of just his character. Well, that's a tremendous example to us. You know, I think oftentimes, particularly in our culture, we think, you know, well, we're Christians, so everybody's going to hate us. And, you know, and that is true, of course. But, but to oftentimes we invite people's hostility by our failure to live uh, in, a, in a respectful and honoring way to them, even in spite of the fact that they are unbelievers. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. What else? Rick, I was kind of thinking uh, how much God honored a life of faith. In a lot of ways, you look at him, he didn't have a real right. I mean, he was a righteous man, but he had a lot of mess ups. And I you know, tend to get the idea of God honors us because we do the right thing or don't do the bad things. But I was thinking in the New Testament how many times Jesus, he didn't get on his followers for messing up. He got on for lack of faith all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking that, you know, in my life, the need maybe is for more faith. And I'm not to be a better guy, so to speak, if we live by faith. Yeah. And the more we do that, the better we will be, too, um, eventually, yeah. What else? Okay, well, as I say last week, we, we finished with the story of Rebecca and we saw how Rebecca made this great choice of faith, just like Abraham, her father-in-law-to-be made. And she left everything that she knew and everything that she was familiar with to, to become a part of the promise and a part of the inheritance. And she does that and, and of course, ultimately then goes down into the into the uh, hall of fame of God's great people who walk by faith. And now we come uh, to the end, as I said, of Abraham's life. And today we're going to look at Abraham's obituary and we're going to look at Abraham's eulogy. And uh, those are actually in two different places in Scripture, but we'll look at them. And we'll talk some about Abraham's son. So... um, Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 25 and, and Lord willing, we'll get down through about verse 18 uh, today and then, as I said, next week we won't be in here. Uh, but in two weeks from now, then we'll pick it up uh, with the beginning of the story of Isaac in verse 19. So in verse 1, he says, Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimram and Jokshan, Jokshan and Median and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Jackson became the father of Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim and Latushim and Lumim, excuse me, I'm stumbling over these here. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephor and Hanok and Abida and Eldah. All these were the sons of Keturah. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, 
Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. These were all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, facing Mamre. The field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried with, his, with Sarah, his wife. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Beer Lahoroi. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian Sarah's maid bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn, Ishmael, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbeel, uh, and Mimsam, and Mish, uh, Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, Hadad, and Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael. These are their names by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt. As one goes towards Assyria, he settled in the defiance of all his relatives. Okay. Well, there's actually quite a bit to talk about in this passage. Uh, and uh, primarily, I want to look at, at three things today. Uh, think about three things. I want to talk briefly about Keturah and the questions that uh, that are raised about uh, this uh, additional wife of Abraham's. And then I want to talk about Abraham's sons, both the sons of Keturah and the sons of Ishmael. And, uh, and then finally, we want to talk about Abraham and the end of Abraham's life. So that's kind of where we're headed. <laughs> In verse 1, uh, the narrator mentions for us the name of this this wife that Abraham took, Keturah. And there's a lot of questions about Keturah. Uh, it's really not clear, and commentators kind of debate this back and forth. Is this, a, is this a woman whom Abraham took as a wife after Sarah died? Or is this a woman that he took uh, as a wife or a concubine uh, before the death of Sarah? And there's really no way from the text to be able to determine that. Uh, the speculation uh, on the part of some is that since uh, obviously Abraham is still quite virile at the time that he's married to Keturah, he has six sons by Keturah, that this uh, presumably was before Sarah's death. By the time Sarah dies, uh, Abraham is 137 years old or whatever. And uh, so it seems unlikely to some that he would father six sons at that old age. Uh, we'll remember that it's that it says about him at the time that he at the time that uh, Isaac was born. It said he looked at his own body uh, when he was 99 years of age. He looked at his own body and considered it as far as childbearing was concerned, the potential of childbearing considered it dead. And uh, obviously he received the miraculous ability 
uh, he and Sarah, the miraculous ability to have a, have a son, uh, Isaac. And perhaps at that point, he's, his body was rejuvenated and he was able then to have more sons. It's really not clear at all. And, and I don't think uh, that we necessarily need to resolve that issue. And it's a good thing because I don't think it can be definitively resolved. Uh, it does refer to her here in verse 1 as a wife, but in verse 6 it refers to her as a concubine. And uh, it refers to his concubines plural, which is presumably a reference to both Hagar uh, and to Keturah. And so, even though in one sense they are considered wise, they are clearly uh, on some lower level or some lesser level uh, than Sarah herself is considered. So, uh, uh, we, you know, in our culture today, we raise question about that, and you know, we, you know, we're uncomfortable with this whole idea of having more than one wife. <clears throat> but clearly, in the Old Testament, it was the practice, uh, particularly of wealthier individuals, to have more than one wife. Uh, it was never really specifically condemned in the Old Testament, explicitly prohibited in the Old Testament. In the law, there were specific instructions given in how you were to treat uh, your second wife or your multiple wives if you had more than one wife or more than two wives. There are specific instructions on how to do it, but there was no specific prohibition in the Old Testament against multiple wives. So, uh, so Abraham, there's no indication that Abraham is doing anything here that God has prohibited him from doing. And, and it seems apparent as we go through the story, it seems apparent that God has blessed him in this. Now, that isn't necessarily an indication uh, that it was the right thing for Abraham to do because we've seen God bless Abraham at other times when he wasn't doing what was right. So, uh, so we just kind of have to read that and go, OK, I don't know what's going on here totally. But clearly, God has blessed him here. He's given him six sons. And through those sons, then he has grandsons, etc., and uh, we'll talk more about them in just a minute. Uh, so, so we have listed here then, we have the six sons of Keturah and the grandsons, etc., that come uh, through Keturah. Uh, and, uh, and then kind of taking the passage out of order, uh, just because it's easier for me to think about it this way. Let's drop down to uh, verse 12 and we have... Uh, in verse 12, we have the beginning of the next Toledot. Okay? Now remember, a Toledot is an account or a record. Remember, the book of Genesis is divided into a series of ten different Toledots. Uh, we have the Toledot, or the account of the, of the heavens and the earth, and then the account of the generations of Adam and Eve, and we have the account of the generations of Noah, and generations of Noah's son, etc., etc., etc. We have these various accounts, or these Toledots, uh, by which the book of Gen uh, Genesis is divided uh, into ten separate parts and, and then, of course, the prelude in the first chapter and a half or so of Genesis. And so, we have come at the end of verse 11, we have come to the end of the Toledot or the account of the generations of Terah, which is, of course, Abraham's father. And as we mentioned, the Toledot, uh, a Toledot is named after the father uh, and, but it's primarily a discussion of the descendants of that individual. Okay, so that's why the Toledot of Terah is really not about Terah so much. It's really about Abraham, and it's about Terah's descendants. Okay, so uh, so we have come to the end uh, in verse 11, or we come to the end of the Toledot 
of terror, which is all about Abraham. And in verse 12, we pick up the next Taladot, which is the Taladot or the account of the generations or the record of the generations of Ishmael. And you will notice that that Taladot is only what? Seven, eight verses long, seven verses long or so. And beginning in verse 19, you'll see now these are the records or the Taladot of the generations of Isaac. So, so today we're going to end one Taladot and cover an entire, uh, entire Taladot. And then the next time we're together, we'll begin the Taladot or the account of the generations of Isaac. Okay. So in, in the uh, Taladot or the account of the generations of Ishmael, of course, it's primarily about his sons. And that's basically what most of these few seven verses are about. It's about listing the sons of Ishmael. And so these, of course, would also be descendants of Abraham. They would be Abraham's grandsons. Okay. So in the context here of the entire passage we're looking at today, beginning in verse one and down through verse 18, then we have uh, the sons of Keturah and her grand and, and some of her grandsons are listed there. So we have a number of sons there. I think there's a total of about 16 names there altogether. And then we have in addition to that, we have Ishmael. And we have uh, the 12 uh, descendants of Ishmael. So we have all these sons. And of course, it also talks some in this passage about Isaac. So we have all these various sons of Abraham are discussed. And the question that comes to my mind as I look at this passage and I, I go, OK, what's what's going on with all these sons? Why is why is uh, Moses taking valuable time and space to talk about all these sons who really aren't? Germain to the main story. The main story, of course, is Isaac and what's going to happen with Isaac. But before he trans, uh, makes the transition from Abraham to Isaac, he pauses and he gives us a picture of all these various sons. Okay? And, and the question is, what's going on here? Why does he do this? Okay. Well, first of all, when we think of, if we drop down to the, to the, towards the end of the passage that we're looking at and we look at this Taladot of Ishmael, uh, I think there are several things that that he's pointing out to us or that should be pointed out to us about this whole story of Ishmael and his sons. Uh, in fact, in going back in verse, uh, even in verse nine, you'll notice then his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. And it goes on and talks about the cave there that Abraham had purchased uh, for the uh, for the burial of his wife, and then ultimately he's buried there too. But you'll notice that Isaac and Ishmael together bury Abraham. Okay. Now let's just pause for a second and think. When was the last time we saw Ishmael? What was going on? Okay. He was 13 years of age, and he was sent off. How was he sent? And why was he sent? <laughs> Uh, say again. Yeah, Isaac was there, and it was at his weaning. Yeah, or after his weaning. He was mocking. Yeah. 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 Sarah saw Ishmael mocking, and uh, she goes to Abraham and she says, "Get rid of this woman and her son. I don't want him to have any part of my son's inheritance." Okay. And uh, of course, Abraham is reluctant. Why is Abraham reluctant? 
Yeah. He loves him. He loves his son. He's had him around for 13 years. Uh, uh, you know, it's, you know, 13 years old, you know, teenager, you kind of wonder, but he did. He loved him, you know. And uh, so he loved, his, he loved his son and he's reluctant to send him off. So why did he do it? God told him to. God said, send him off. And so when he sent him off, how did he send him? Do you remember? Just water and his mother and a little bit of food and and he sent him off. And what happened? I revealed to her that I'll take care of it. Okay, but before that. What was what where did she find herself before he communicated that to her? Yeah, she was she was out she was in pretty bad straits. She was out there and she thought she was gonna die, she thought her son was gonna die. And she's out there, and at that time, and this is of course at Bir Lahoroi, which becomes ultimately the place uh, where Isaac lives. Okay, but she lifts up her eyes and she sees the well, and God promises that He will take her. The second time that God had promised that to Hagar that she, He was going to do these great things. So that's the last time we saw Ishmael. Now where do we see Ishmael? Burying his dad. They didn't go very far geographically, and apparently they didn't go very far emotionally. Do you notice that? You know, if I was Ishmael, and I was 13 years old, and my dad sent me packing out in the desert with nothing but a bottle of water and a little bit of food, I don't know, how would you feel? Okay, okay. I might think, well, I shouldn't have said what I said about his other son, you know. But what else? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that tend to create a little bit of hostility between you and your dad? You know, it doesn't, it's, it's silent here, and we don't want to make a lot of arguments from the silence of Scripture. But, but I have to imagine that at some point in the many years that have passed since that time, okay, because it has now been many years, it's been. 60 or so years since then, okay? But that's, that somehow Abraham has taken steps to make sure that his relationship with Ishmael is right. You know, I don't know what he did. Now, it does say here that he sent off the sons of his concubines with gifts and sent them to the east. And that really is not an accurate description of what he did with Ishmael, presumably he did this with his other six sons by Keturah, but with Ishmael, he didn't send him off with anything that I would describe as a gift. A bottle of water is not much of a gift. And so I just, I have to wonder if maybe at some point later Abraham went, okay, I really owe Ishmael more than this. (laughs) I don't know, but I just kind of assume because of the way it's worded here that he, he gave them gifts while he was still alive that at some point Abraham said, I need to make some things right with Ishmael. <laughs> now, of course, what he did, he did by God's direction. That is, sending him out. That was, you know, that was what God told him to do. But God didn't necessarily tell him to do it the way he did it. <laughs> and so, uh, so I, I don't know what the answer is here, but, but it gives me hope. And maybe it gives you hope. Are you in a fractured relationship? Are you in a situation, relationship with someone and there's been barriers, there's been obstacles, there's been things you've done or things they've done or 
maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> and there's there's a there's a breach in that relationship. Sometimes sometimes just time and swallowing a little bit of humble pie <laughs> and going back and seeking to heal those breaches. Sometimes that can pay off. And and to me it's a precious thing to see Ishmael here at the end involved in showing that honor and that respect to his father by burying his father. You know, I don't know if I'm reading too much between the lines there, but to me it, it strikes me that he's there burying his father. So that's one thing that catches my attention in this uh, in this passage. Uh, and then you'll notice that that Ishmael gets his own Taladot. Okay, it's brief. It may be, I think it is the shortest Taladot in all of Genesis, right after we've gone through one of the longest ones, 13 chapters. We come now to one that's only a few verses long. But he gets his own Taladot. In other words, to the narrator of Genesis, even though he's not a major part of the story, he's an important part of the story. And there are important things we need to recognize as we think about the story of, of Ishmael. And, and one of them is, he, he, he gives us this Taladot, he gives us this account of the generations of Ishmael, and he lists these 12 sons, and he 12, tells us that these 12 sons, have that he refers to them, I believe, as princes here. Yes, in verse 16, he says they were 12 princes according to their tribes. So he describes for us these 12 sons and their and the fact that they are princes of their uh, living in their villages and their camps or wherever they're living. So they're becoming quite influential individuals. What's the significance of that? Okay, okay, that's true. And in fact, just so we don't, so I don't forget to mention this, remember that the book of Genesis and the whole Pentateuch is being written in the wilderness for whom? For Israel, okay? And Israel is preparing to go in and conquer the promised land and to live in the promised land. So what is the narrator doing here? He's introducing the children of Israel to their new neighbors, right? Okay, these are all the people that live around Canaan, live in the vicinity surrounding Canaan, okay? These are the people you're going to be rubbing shoulders with, and they're your relatives. You know, this is their origin, and this is why they're there, and this is what they're doing there, okay? And so it is, to some degree, an introduction to Israel of their new neighbors and the significance of their neighbors. But there's something else going on here. He did. He did. He told Agar, he said, listen, this the first time when she fled from Sarah, when she was still pregnant and, and God arrested her and spoke to her and told her to go back and said to her, uh, now, uh, listen, I'm going to bless your son. You have, a, you have a son in you. You have a boy in you and he's going to grow up to be a man. He's going to be great and he's going to be the father of many nations. Okay. Basically, what he's doing, what God is doing is he's saying, well, I've given a, I've given a blessing, to, blessing to Abraham. And Abraham, in his effort to, in the flesh to accomplish that blessing, has sucked you into this whole thing. And you've been pulled into it, not necessarily 
with your own, by your own consent or your own will, you've been pulled into this thing. So in some sense, I'm going to give you a little bit of the blessing that I'm giving to Abraham. Certainly not everything that he gives to Abraham. But to Hagar and to Ishmael, he gives an element of that same blessing that, she's going to, that, that, that Ishmael is going to become mighty and great and he's going to have these 12 sons and, uh, and they are going to uh, end up being great princes and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and so this is a promise that God gave to Hagar and by extension gave to Ishmael many, many years before, right? And so what do we learn from this? Yeah. God keeps his promises. He doesn't even just he doesn't just keep his promises to the Abrahams, <laughs> but he keeps his promises to the Ishmaels and to the Hagars. God is faithful. And his word to Hagar and his word to Ishmael is as absolute and as sure and as certain as his word is to Abraham. And if his word to Hagar and his word to Ishmael is as absolute and sure as his word is to Abraham, then is not his word to you as absolute and sure and certain as his word to Abraham? You know, I... I, you know, I read this whole story of Abraham and I say, okay, God said this to Abraham, said that to Abraham, promised Abraham this, he promised Abraham that. And I go, well, of course they'll keep his promise to Abraham. It's Abraham. But he kept his promise to Ishmael too. And boy, there's an example of somebody who didn't do anything to deserve it. <laughs> but God is faithful. God is faithful. And God keeps His Word. And one of the things we learn from the Taladot of Ishmael is the faithfulness of God. But there's another thing there that strikes me as I think about this lesson is God gave this promise to Hagar that is fulfilled here, that we see fulfilled in this Taladot. God gave this promise to Hagar, but why did He give the promise to Hagar? What was it that prompted God to give the promise to Hagar? And you're going to have to put your thinking caps on and go back and, and either go back to Genesis 16 and look it up or try to remember what we talked about when we were looking at Genesis 16. But why did God do this? What prompted God to show this great kindness to Hagar and to Ishmael? Go on, Rick. You're about to do it there. You're going to make the leap. <laughs> she was desperate. She was desperate. Uh-huh. Teetered wrongly. What did God say when He made the promise? What does the name Ishmael mean? God hears. Remember that? God says to her, you're going to name him Ishmael. Why? Because I have heard 
your affliction. And so, we have this promise to Hagar and we see the promise fulfilled and we're reminded of the faithfulness of God in that. But we're also reminded that the promise came to God because God heard her affliction. No, we have no idea. I assume she is. <laughs> I assume she's around. She, we do know that she secured a wife for Ishmael, and I'm assured, I'm, I'm confident that probably children probably started coming fairly soon after that, but she kind of fades off the scene, so we don't know at what point she passed away. Uh, but, what is, but what is significant to me here is not only that that the Taladot of Ishmael reminds us of the faithfulness of God, but it reminds us that God sees and hears and remembers our afflictions. And he saw the affliction of Hagar. And he remembered the affliction of Hagar. How long was Hagar afflicted? How long did Hagar suffer? Well, she was a slave. Presumably, she was brought back from Egypt when Abraham went down into Egypt and came back because she was an Egyptian. So, presumably, she was brought back from Egypt after Pharaoh. Pharaoh, we remember Pharaoh gave uh, Abraham some maidservants, slaves. And, uh, and uh, so, Abraham came back from Egypt with those slaves. And, and I assume that she was one of them. So, she's, in, she's a slave. Now, slavery in that day is not like slavery was in early American history. So, don't equate those two as being totally uh, equal, but but it was still obviously not the desirable uh, situation to be in, and and so she's in this situation, and then she kind of gets sucked into this whole thing with Abraham and Sarah and their and their desire to somehow accomplish the promise of God by the arm of flesh, and she gets pulled into that, and then she. And then she, of course, she doesn't respond right. She starts, you know, uh, mistreating and, and, and relating to Sarah in bad ways. And so that incurs Sarah's wrath. And there's all the wrath of Sarah. And then, of course, presumably for those 13 years that, uh, that Ishmael's growing up, there's, I, I cannot help but imagine that there's a tug of war uh, to some degree that goes on between Sarah and, and, uh, and Hagar and uh, even though I think to some degree there was reconciliation, I can't I can't help but imagine that there was some competition there, uh, and then and then finally there's the, the the whole ugly scene there at the uh, at the celebration of the weaning of Isaac, and and the the mocking that's involved, and 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 then she's driven out under those very unpleasant circumstances, and she finds herself dying with her son in the desert. It's a long time to suffer, folks. But the weeping may last for a night. Shout of joy comes in the morning. And can you imagine in the heart of Hagar, presuming she was around, and I do presume she was around, presuming, can you imagine the joy in the heart of Hagar each time Ishmael had another son? Twelve of them all together. And when we're in the midst of our affliction and when we're in the midst of our suffering, it just seems like it goes on forever and it will never stop. And we just go, how long, O Lord? But our God is a God who sees 
And our God is a God who hears. And He knows our afflictions. And His heart is moved with compassion as His heart was moved in compassion for Hagar and her circumstances. Hagar was to a large measure in her, to, to some measure, not to a large measure, but to some measure, was in her predicament because of her own attitude. And because of mistakes she had made in the way she had related to her mistress. But that doesn't change the fact that God looked on her affliction and God looked on her sorrow and God looked on her suffering and God had compassion on her. And God said, I'm going to make your son great. And he's going to become the father of many nations. And when she was sitting out there all alone in the desert by herself before the birth of her son, that must have seemed like a million miles away, like another universe, like an unimaginable world. But it happened. And eventually in the life of Hagar, the joy came. Because God is not only faithful, but God is a God who sees and hears our affliction. And those are some of the things that I'm reminded of when I look at this polydot of Ishmael. Well, just briefly then, um, when, we, when we look at all these sons and, and we, we see what Abraham did, how he gave them gifts while he was still alive, and then he sent them away. And it emphasizes he sent them away from his son Isaac. The idea is get them away from Isaac. Okay? So he sends them to the east. He sends them out eastward. And, uh, of course, uh, we've talked already in Genesis about how oftentimes in Scripture the idea of the east is it starts clear back there in Genesis chapter 3 where the Lord drives Adam and Eve out to the east out of the Garden of Eden. And so the idea of the east oftentimes is to be away from God or away from the presence of God or away from the blessings of God and that sort of thing. And that clearly is what's going on here. That Abraham is, is sending them out to the east. He's sending them so they will have, so there will be no rivals whatsoever to, to Isaac's claim to the land of promise. Okay? So he sends them. He doesn't want them in the land of promise because if they're in the land of promise, they're going to make a claim on the land of promise. And he doesn't want them anywhere near the land of promise. So they're sent out to the east. And Abraham gives everything to Isaac. So other than the gifts that he gives to these other sons, the whole inheritance goes to Isaac. Why? Because Isaac is the son of the promise. And so, the, so all the inheritance goes to Isaac. And these people are sent out. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, flip over real quickly to the book of Isaiah. And I want you just to read this. We don't have a lot of time to think about this, but... Uh, Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, just before you look at this, keep your finger there in chapter 60, but just look down at those names that we've just looked at in chapter 18. Just glance down through those again real quickly. Okay. There's Joxim and there's Deden and there's the Ashram and there's Latutim and Deden and Sheba and et cetera, et cetera. And you get down to the sons of, of Ishmael and there's Nebaioth and there's Ish, uh, Keter and Abdiel and Mibsham and all these different guys. Okay, just kind of glance at those names. Now, chapter 60 of verse Isaiah, it says, Arise, as he's speaking to Israel here. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come 
and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. He's talking about at the end, at the very end of this whole redemptive story. Okay, He says, And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and His glory will appear before you. Nations will come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in their arms. And you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because of the abundance of the sea will be turned to you and the wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Epoch and those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news to the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth will minister to you and they will go up with acceptance on my altar. And I shall glorify my glorious house. And the thing, the thing about this that's so glorious is that these, all these people that have been driven away and they've been sent out to the east and they have lived for millennia away from the presence of God. The promise of Isaiah chapter 60 is they will come back in and they will bring the good news of the Lord to Israel and they will join with Israel in worshiping the Lord and they will bring with them the wealth of the nations. What is the wealth of the nations? What is the gold of the nations? Isn't it the peoples? Isn't it the peoples of the nations? And so even though these people have been excluded and they've been driven away because they're not people of the promise and because they don't walk by faith, there is this tremendous promise of God that there is going to come a light and that light is going to shine and all the nations will be drawn to that light. And the good news about that, folks, is that that includes you and me. Because we weren't in that whole line of promise. We're some of those scattered nations that are scattered all over the face of the earth. But we... We have seen that light that has shined on Israel and we have been drawn in. And, and so we see this picture that in God blessing Keturah and God blessing Hagar and God blessing Ishmael and causing them to have all those children. We go, why is God doing all that? I mean, that's not part of this program, is it? Yeah, that is part of this program. Remember what his program is? His program from the very outset from the very beginning, before the fall, was have a world populated by worshipers who fellowship with Him. And He's still doing that, folks. He's still doing that. And in our culture and in our society, it's very, it's very kosher and very proper to talk about birth control, but God isn't interested in birth control. God is interested in filling the earth with His glory. God is interested in populating the earth with millions and millions of people and then 
using his children to get the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ out to them. So that they can come in and be a part and see and worship and enjoy his presence forever. Well, you didn't know there was all that in those genealogies, did you? But it's there. <laughs> well, so we come to the end of Abraham's life, which is right in the middle of the passage. And it says about Abraham that his life, uh, in verse 7, he, he lived 175 years. In verse 8, it says he breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. What? What an obituary, huh? <laughs> Died an old man, ripe old age, satisfied with life. Back in chapter 24, verse 1, it said God had blessed him in every way. What a testimony. Why, why could it say this about Abraham? Why could Abraham at the end of 175 years, why could he lay his head down on the pillow of his deathbed and be completely satisfied? The word there actually is satiated. Why? Because he knew God. Because he knew God. And he walked by faith. He knew God and he walked by faith. Let me show you another verse. We'll cover this in more detail when we get there. But clear over in chapter 47 of Genesis. <clears throat> I think it's 47. Yeah, 47 verse 9. This is the end of Jacob's life. So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. Nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. Wow. That's a contrast, isn't it? And they're both men of faith. But although Abraham made a number of serious mistakes in his life, the testimony of Abraham's life is that he just walked by faith and he kept believing God and as much as he could, he just refused to compromise his confidence in God. And when we get to the story of Jacob, we're going to find out that's not quite how Jacob lived his life. <laughs> that even though he believed God and he basically trusted God over and over and over again, Jacob is the supplanter. Jacob is the guy who's always trying to do it his own way and grab it for himself. And he, his view of his life is completely different than, than this description that we get of Abraham. Yes, Rick. Yeah. 
He's got that for all of us. Yeah, yeah. And, and realize that, hey, that, that line of Ishmael, that was just as much a part yeah. of God's plan. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is they were all sent out from the east. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, to the east. that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And they all came through the ark. And, uh, so there's a way back. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, so he's he's this old man. He's satisfied with life. He's 175 years. He's lived 100 years in the land of Canaan, in the land of promise. And and he he comes to pass and. And he lays his head down and he's satisfied with life. But Abraham is not completely satisfied. And to see that, let's turn from this obituary to his eulogy in Hebrews chapter 11. I didn't know this passage was going to affect me like this. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to the place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. How long did he live there? He lived a hundred years there, folks. Would you be willing to live a hundred years in the land as a stranger and an alien in the land of promise? He lived there with Isaac and even with Jacob. Jacob, uh, uh, Jacob and Esau were born about 15 years before Abraham died. And so he lived with his son and his grandson in the tents. Uh, For he was looking, it says, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then it talks a little bit about Sarah. And then it says in verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared a city for them. And so we discover something about Abraham. That Abraham was satisfied with life. He was satisfied with all that God had given to him and provided for him in life. But Abraham was not yet fully satisfied. Because Abraham was looking for another place. He was looking for a place he could call home. And even though he lived here in the land of promise for a hundred years, he never called it home. Because he was looking for a city 
with foundations whose architect and builder was God. And he trained Isaac to live that way. And he tried to train in the few years that he had Jacob to live that way. Jacob had to go through some hard school hard knocks before he finally learns this. But And we'll study all about that as we go on. But, but what strikes me about Abraham is that with all that God had blessed him with, and he blessed him in every way, it says in 24.1, with all that God had blessed him with, when Abraham laid down on that deathbed, he still had something he was looking for. He had something, he, there was still something his heart was desiring. And because of that, it says, you see that? Did you notice that? Because of that, it says, God was not ashamed to be called his God. Remember that thing in Egypt? He goes down there into Egypt and he messes with the Egyptians' minds and he, you know, lies about it. And the thing with, with the thing with the king of, uh, of Gerar, with Benelech, and and all the while he's doing that, he's saying, "God is my God. Yahweh is my God." And even at those hours, God is not ashamed to be called his God. Why? Because when it all when it comes down to the to the very basic, most elementary thing. Abraham is confessing, I'm a stranger and I'm an it. Notice it says he says it. It doesn't mean he just thinks it. He says it. He articulates it. He tells people, I'm, I'm, this, I'm just a stranger here, folks. I'm just a stranger. And God has prepared a place for me. And that's where my affection is. And that's where my heart is. And that's where my home is. And that's what I'm living for. And the thing that struck me as I was thinking about this was I was thinking, God, would you just, would you spare me from being ever fully satisfied with this life? To me, it is so incomprehensible that God is not ashamed to be called my God. I mean, I'm ashamed of Him at times. But even when I'm ashamed of Him, He's not ashamed of me because I'm telling you, folks, God's given me a lot of good stuff in life. i got a great family. i got a great wife. i got great kids. You know, I live in a great country with a lot of problems, but a great country. I got a lot of stuff, but I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied. And this isn't home, folks. Jesus said He's gone to prepare a place for me, and that's where my home is, and that's where my affections, that's where I want my affections to be, and that's what I want to love. And when God looks at us and He sees with all the blessings that He pours upon us and all the goodness and all the good things He does for us, with all of that, He looks on us and we still go to Him. We still say to Him, God, I'm not home yet and I won't be satisfied until I'm with You. And God says, 
I'm their God. I'm their God and I'm not ashamed of it. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? Okay, well, next uh, time we'll pick up the story of Isaac in verse uh, 19.